Good morning, friends. <clears throat> that chapter that you just heard read is uh, uh, famous for being difficult to understand, uh, as you can imagine. But today is going to be the, the final sermon of Mark's gospel. We have been in it for a couple years now, and we've actually covered chapters 14 through 16 twice. And now we're going to end our time together in this great gospel of Mark this morning, Lord willing. Uh, as we have sat here for the last couple of years, learning from Mark and the Holy Spirit, uh, we have learned one thing, hopefully, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over all, that he is Lord even over chaos. When things become chaotic, he has not lost his lordship over those things. And so we, we've learned as we've studied that he is Lord over creation, right? He, he controls the weather, like on the Sea of Galilee. He is Lord over demonic activity, as we saw him casting out demons left and right in the middle chapters of this book. We saw him Lord over disease when he healed people all over the, the land of Canaan. We saw he was Lord over food and the creation out of nothing when he fed the 5,000. And every moment where chaos came up, the Lord Jesus, and this was Mark's intent, demonstrated his lordship over that situation. And so now when we come to eschatology, that is the study of end times, Mark chapter 13, I want to remind you of the focus of Mark, the author of this gospel. He remains Lord over all things, including future things. He is Lord of eschatology. So all the craziness that we just heard read that will take place in the future is not outside the grasp and reach, much less the control of Jesus of Nazareth. So with that being said, I want to take you into this chapter. We're going to focus on verses 14 through 37 because last week we studied verses 1 through 13. And we're going to begin with the Great Tribulation starting in verse 14. So if you have a Bible, I want you to make sure you're open to Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 14. And as we look at this prophecy of Jesus, it can, it can become distressing, can it? I mean, you, you look at some biblical prophecies and you start getting a little concerned about different things and, and that's normal. But I want, to, I want to point out some verses in this text that may bring you a measure of peace and then as we explain our way through these I'm hoping that you'll leave encouraged instead of um, concerned. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23 Jesus says, be on your guard I have told you all these things beforehand. This is not the first time we've read those words from Jesus. Uh, he said this whenever he sensed that his disciples were getting a little bit nervous about the circumstances he was describing. And so he's telling them and he's telling us, the Holy Spirit's telling us, listen, Jesus has got this. I've told you this beforehand. This is what's going to happen. So you can just settle in and enjoy the ride. Look at verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. All the way through scripture, we are promised by God and his prophets that he will re return one day to this planet that he has created in power and glory. The first time he came, it wasn't that way, was it? No, it was in humbleness and quietness. But the next time he comes will be in power and glory, and it'll be something to behold, especially as a believer. Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Listen, elect ones, listen to me, those of you who are in love with Jesus Christ, who have placed your hope in him. When you pass away, you won't be left to drift around in nothingness for an eternity. No, 
we hear from the mouth of Jesus himself that one day he will send out his angels and gather all of us together to be with him throughout time and eternity, however long that will be, together with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. And then finally, at verse 33, I want you to hear what I'm going to end with this sermon. He said, be on your guard, keep awake. That is where I'm going to end up in this sermon, and it's going to take some time to get there. And I'm not saying we'll, we'll preach through your lunch break, but I am going to take some time to get there, and you're going to have to uh, pay particularly close attention if you're going to understand what Jesus is saying there, and I hope to get you there soon enough. But we have already covered verses 1 through 13, right? We did that last week, where Jesus describes the beginning of the end the birth pangs, if you will, of the end times. Now we're going to jump into verses 14 to the end of the chapter, beginning with verse 14. And I've titled this, The Abominable Antichrist. The Abominable Antichrist. Verse 14 says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Well, after Jesus explained the initial birth pangs in verses 1 through 13, he begins to explain now, starting here, what will take place immediately prior to his physical return to this planet. And of course, this will take place after some extended human history. Mark 13, verse 14, mentions the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. What does that mean? Well, it means that there will be someone standing in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God, desecrating that holy place. Throughout Israel's history, the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Jewish temple, was considered to be the most sacred place on the planet. The actual presence of God resided there. Of course, in AD 70, that temple was destroyed, but, it sounds to me like that temple will be rebuilt because the, uh, the abomination of desolation will be in that place once again. And that is part of our eschatological teaching in this church. That building will be restored. That holy of holies will be in place. At that time, the abomination of desolation, that, that man of uh, sin, will be there under the control of Satan, desecrating that holy place. So that is what Jesus meant. In Matthew's account, chapter 24, verse 15 of Matthew, Jesus said that Daniel, the prophet, recorded these things a long time ago. It says in Daniel 9, 27, that the thing that Jesus was warning about, that abomination of desolation, will be the middle point, that three and a half year point of the tribulation, which would trigger what Jesus calls the great tribulation. So when we see the abomination of desolation taking place, we know we're halfway through the tribulation time. And of course, that will begin, that, that three and a half year point mark will begin a, an intense time of God's judgment on the rebels in this world. Not those who follow Christ, but the rebels who are opposed to Christ. In the book of Daniel, this abomination of desolation is mentioned three times, chapter 9, 11, and 12. But in Daniel eleven thirty one, Daniel referred to this abomination of desolation, and it was a, a historical reference of the desecration by Antiochus IV. He was a Seleucid king who lived 175 years before Christ, and in his reign, he went into the Holy of Holies and desecrated the Holy of Holies by sacrificing a pig on the altar and forcing the priest to eat the meat of that pig and then began to meticulously murder Jews, thousands of Jews and selling thousands of others into slavery. That was Daniel's prophecy of what would take place in the year 175 and to 165 B.C. This particular man, Antiochus, wanted to be called Theos Epiphanes. Theos Epiphanes. And of course we know the word Theos means God. Epiphany means appearing or 
manifest, so he wanted to be called the manifestation of God. This was, this was Antiochus IV. And when he did that, of course, everybody shuddered and thought that is what Daniel was talking about. And indeed, it was what Daniel was talking about. But it was only a foreshadowing of what Jesus is talking about. So what took place in 165 B.C., before Christ, was just foreshadowing what Jesus was talking about would come at the middle point of the Great Tribulation. All right, so Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 record that future event, while Daniel 11 recorded that first event of the abomination of desolation in 165 B.C. At the point of that of the middle of that tribulation when, when we get to the abomination of desolation that Jesus is referring to, that's the middle of the seven-year tribulation that I was referring to just a minute ago. And how do we know the difference? Well, the difference was Antiochus was not claiming to be God. He was claiming, because, and here's an important point. I forgot to say this. Antiochus set up in the temple, part of his desecration was he sent up in the temple an idol or a visage of Zeus and required the Jews to bow down to Zeus as the only true God. He was claiming to be a personification of God, but not God himself. The, the abomination of desolation that Jesus was referring to, this guy is going to actually claim to be God. Does that you see the difference? This guy was claiming to be a, a representation of God. The guy Jesus was talking about is claiming to be actually God and desecrating the temple in the meantime. And so this Antichrist will declare all the followers of Christ his enemies, and he will hunt them down and kill them unless they recant, according to Revelation 13 and Revelation 6. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, knew about eschatology. Obviously, if you read First and Second Thessalonians, you discover that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, Paul tells us that the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple as God and will demand worship. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. The abomination of desolation. This guy will be controlled by Satan. He'll be able to do signs and wonders and maybe even convince a few weak-minded people that he is God. But we are told about this uh, by the prophets in the scriptures. An interesting insight, at least I think it's interesting, is that the words of Jesus weren't particularly aimed for the disciples who were listening to his answer to their question. Remember back in uh, verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13 that there's four of his disciples asked him, what do you mean the temple's going to be destroyed? Remember last week's sermon? What do you mean the temple's going to be destroyed? And then Jesus began to answer their question by telling them about future events. His response to those four guys was not necessarily aimed at those four guys. And I want to show you why this is important. They, the, his words were intended for those believers who would come much later, who would come at the time of the events prophesied. This, my contention here, is supported by the words recorded in Mark. Matthew records the very same words. I want you to look at verse 14 closely. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it not ought to stand, that is, when you, that's the point of the midpoint of the tribulation, let the reader understand. So let me explain why this is important. If I'm here preaching to you, and in the middle of a sentence I say, and let the reader understand, you're going to think, that's a little odd. Why would that be odd? Because I'm speaking to you. But if I said, let the reader understand, I would know that this sermon was being recorded or written, and a future reader would need to pay particular attention, which is exactly what Jesus meant. He was answering the question of these four guys for the sake of those who would yet come, who would witness the things he was about to prophesy. Let the reader understand. Mark and Matthew said the same thing. That's important. It tells you something about timing. In other words, we're not in the millennium, okay? This has not yet taken place, the things he's about to say. This is supported here 
in Mark and in Matthew. Jesus' words were for future readers who would need to know how to navigate those treacherous times. Now let's look at the abominable Christ. We just looked at that in, verses, in verse 14. Now let's look at the panicked people in verses 14 through 18. If you'll let your eyes just scan through verses 14 through 18, they've already been read for you. There is significant panic taking place, isn't there, in the minds of the people who are experiencing that. They were, they're told not to go back home if they're out in the field, if they're on their rooftop, don't go down and get anything. Run for the hills and hope you're not pregnant. That's what it said, right? Panic is what Jesus is describing. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, we learn the following. Only one-third of the Jews in Judea at that time will survive that holocaust. In Zechariah 12, we learn that at the end of that time, the Great Tribulation, the nations will attack Israel, and Jesus Christ himself will destroy those who are attacking Israel. And at the very same moment that Jesus comes to defend Israel at the end of the tribulation period is when we will see him with our own eyes if we are alive at that time. And then the judgment of the nations will take place according to Matthew 25. So a lot is happening in quick succession at this point. Once that midpoint of the, the tribulation takes place, the second half is called the Great Tribulation. It's marked by the abomination of desolation. And then Jesus is explaining to his readers, to you and me, let the reader be, be, understand and be alert, the following things. So immediately following these events, that is the destruction of the enemies of Christ, Jesus is going to come and set up his physical earthly reign for 1,000 years called the Millennial Kingdom. This is seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. These prophecies indicate, and I, I've already uh, alluded to this, but what I'm telling you here is that all these things indicate, the prophecies in this chapter, Zechariah, Zephaniah, all these prophecies in Daniel that I've been referring to indicate that A.D. 70 was not the beginning of this, all right? And that may mean not a lot to you right now, but if you were to study eschatology, it would become meaningful to you. The epicenter of this judgment, this last three and a half year judgment of the tribulation, is going to be Jerusalem, but we learn from reading Revelation that the death and destruction during that time period is going to be a worldwide event. Epicenter, Jerusalem, but it is going to filter out to the rest of the world. And it won't be aimed just at Jews, it'll be aimed at any remaining believers also. And this will be the target of the Antichrist's murderous wrath. But throughout all of this, the abominable Antichrist, which is the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the panicked people, which takes place during the last three and a half years of that Great Tribulation, and then finally in verses 19 through 23, we see something important, and that is this, the guarding God. The guarding God. Look at these verses with me, 19 through 23. For in those days there will be such tribulation has not been, has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This is going to be the pinnacle of chaos. Remember we're talking about chaos in the, in the Gospel of Mark? This is the pinnacle of that chaos. And I want you to notice who's in charge even during that chaotic time in world history. Verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days, and then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, look there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So what are we getting at here? Once the abomination of desolation takes place, Everyone will know that the tribulation is at the midpoint. There will be no confusion at that point. If we're confused about eschatology, that will clear it up. All right? This marks the beginning of what Jesus called, and I referred to earlier, the great tribulation. Let me read it for you from Matthew 24. Verse 21, Jesus speaking. For then there will be 
great tribulation, quote unquote, such it has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. So it's not just in Mark, it's in Matthew. According to Jesus, nothing will compare to the massive upheaval, destruction, and chaos of this time period. And as I've said before, I think it is highly unlikely that this is represented in AD 60 at the destruction of the temple. It's greater than the world has ever seen. And what we saw in AD 60 has been seen repeatedly. All right? Now, same, same section, same subpoint, so you can keep your finger right there in Matthew's Gospel and in your notes. In Revelation chapter 6 through 16, Revelation chapter 6 through 16, we read of John's prophecy of these very future events. So John is going to describe from his inspired pen, information from the Holy Spirit, in other words, this future chaotic event or events. Here's the list. From Revelation 6, 12 through 17, massive earthquakes. Hail and fire will kill one-third of Earth's vegetation, Revelation 8. One-third of the oceans will turn to blood, Revelation 8. One-third of the water will be poisoned, Revelation 8. One-third of the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Massive numbers of demons will be released on the earth to terrorize people, Revelation 9. One-third of the earth's population will die, Revelation 9. More very large earthquakes will take place after all this, killing thousands, extreme heat will scorch the earth, Revelation 16, and the Euphrates River will dry up, Revelation 16. The great Euphrates will dry up. <laughs> have any things thing happened yet? No, they have not happened yet, which means that I think Jesus, as he says in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13, was referring to a futuristic time. Not something that's behind us historically, but something that's ahead of us futuristically. All this will take place just prior to the return to set up his millennial kingdom. That's why Jesus called these things birth pangs. They happen right before the baby is born. They happen right before Christ returns. That's the point, okay? Thankfully, those horrific days will be cut short by God, he says, because of the elect, because he loves his people. Who are the elect here that he's talking about? I thought us premillennial folks, us pre-trib folks, all the Christians were going to be gone by then. Well, guess what? It says thousands upon thousands will come to faith during the tribulation period. Those are the elect, just as much as you and I are the elect, aren't they? If you're in heaven a billion years from now, you're part of the elect, whether you were saved in the tribulation or you were saved in the Garden of Eden. The elect, and that would include most of us in this room. They are believers who came to faith, came to Christ during the tribulation period. These folks, that the tribulation was cut short, was to spare them all this pain and agony. So God has promised to protect his people from the ravages of the Antichrist during the tribulation period, especially those last intense three and a half years. They will not be deceived by anyone claiming to be God, no matter where they're standing, no matter what signs they're performing, they will not be deceived. Why? Because they're elect. <laughs> the elect don't get deceived, eternally deceived. Oh, you might get you know, pushed off center from time to time by different things, but you will finally never end deceived. That will not happen because you're elect. And if you're elect, that means you will be in heaven one day. So let's move now from the great tribulation to the, to the ending of Jesus' teaching on eschatology in Mark 13, where he actually discusses the details of his return. The return of Jesus, verses 24 through 37. I'm going to refer to a few of these verses here and there, but I'm not going to reread all of them. When Jesus returns, those who remain on the earth will be the ones who populate the earth. So remember, there's quite a bit of cataclysmic things happening when he returns. 
all the armies of the earth will, will gather at Jerusalem and he will destroy them. That's a lot of people that will die. Um, there will be a lot of death and uh, destruction that will eliminate a lot of people before that event that I just referenced. And so there will be some, though, who survive all of that chaos. Those are the ones who will enter into the millennial kingdom under Jesus Christ's reign. As horrific as those days will be just prior to his setup of his kingdom, it will not be the end of the human race. The human race will continue into the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will return, he'll establish his earthly reign, and will reign over the earth and all of its people for a thousand peaceful years, where the, the human race will flourish as God intended originally. The return of Jesus is what Paul calls the blessed hope. Have you heard that before? The blessed hope? This is what Paul called the return of Christ. It's something that every true believer looks forward to and yearns for. We sing about it. We're going to sing about it. It's going to be the last song that we sing today. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's what Paul, I mean, the Apostle John ended his revelation with. Come, Lord Jesus. It is something that all true Christians look forward to. We believe that when we die, of course, our spirits will immediately be with Christ in glory. That's what Paul said, to be absent from the body, to be present with Christ, right? So if we die or our loved ones die, we can be assured that they will be in heaven in spirit with Christ immediately. But what happens to our bodies? Well, our bodies disintegrate to dust, but guess what? Because of the resurrection of Christ, we will be raised with him physically to be joined together back with our spirits in that time when Christ returns for his bride, the church, which happens immediately before what we teach, what we think to be true, immediately before the tribulation period. It's called the rapture. Have you heard of that? The Bible speaks of that. Paul speaks of that. John speaks of that. But we teach that it is at the moment of the rapture that the seven-year tribulation will begin. Then at the end of those seven years, all the saints will return to earth with Jesus along with his angels and be a part of that victorious army that defeats the enemies of Christ and begin his 1,000-year physical reign on earth. So what I said earlier, needs to be re you need to be reminded of. The first advent of Christ comes in quietness, humility, almost like God sneaks into human history 2,000 years ago. What's it going to be like here at the end? It says in verse 26, it'll be with glory and power. Everybody on the planet will know it, not just a few shepherds in Jerusalem area. No, it'll be the entire planet will see the glory and power of Jesus Christ displayed when he returns the second time with his armies, including you and me and all his angels. It's going to be quite the event. The second advent is different than the first advent. Look at this with me, if you'll follow me through these verses. Verses 24 through 27, the glorious coming of Jesus. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That sounds pretty significant to me. Um, I want to show you from verses 24 through 27, four elements that will mark the return of Jesus' physical return, okay? First of all, the timing. Look in verse 24, he says, in those days. What days? The days that he's been describing, the days of chaos. In those days, Jesus is going to bolt out of heaven with his armies of angels and saints and take over this planet in those days, those terrible days of great tribulation. So after all the devastation and violence towards Christians and Jews, the attack of Israel, the utter chaos that takes place, Jesus will return in brilliant glory and set up his kingdom. Secondly, the conditions surrounding that return. It says the sun and the moon will be darkened. This is a cosmic destruction. When the sun and moon are darkened, something significant is happening, right? <laughs> God will cause all of this. It says the powers of heaven will be shaken. I think this is a pretty clear description of celestial chaos. Now, who's in charge of chaos? Christ Jesus is in charge of chaos. That's Mark's point of this whole book. 
But this won't require this cosmic chaos, the darkening of the sun and stars and moon, won't require a specific command for Jesus to say, be darkened, sun, or be darkened, stars. No, because of what we learn in Hebrews 1.3. Look at what this says. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Who are we talking about? Jesus Christ. Now, look about what the author of Hebrews is about to say. And he, Christ Jesus, upholds the universe by a word of his power. You know why the sun's not dark now? You know why there is orbiting planets and orbiting galaxies and stars still in the sky? Because Jesus is upholding the universe with the power of his word. The minute he withdraws that sustaining power, guess what happens? The sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, stars start falling out of place, orbits go nuts. What's holding it together is the power of Jesus Christ currently. And so there will be not be some command from God for things to go crazy. He'll just withdraw his sustaining grace and power. In that moment, it'll begin. The prophets Joel and Isaiah both predict these exact conditions. Isaiah 13 and Joel 2. Other Old Testament prophets chime in on the same events. Ezekiel, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all talk about this. Even New Testament prophetic literature like Luke 21. Look at these verses in 25 and 26. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars and the earth's distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Things are going nuts at this point and it's going to cause the inhabitants of the earth to freak out a bit, as you can imagine. For the powers of heaven, familiar phrase here, will be shaken. <laughs> Look at the entrance now of Jesus' return. Verse 26. He's going to come in power and glory. So against this dark, chaotic backdrop and the overwhelming fear of the earth's inhabitants, Jesus will come from heaven in glory with you and me. Paul speaks of this in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, what's going to grant relief to those who are afflicted during this time? Those who are the saints of God, the elect? The appearance of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that moment when you realize if you were alive and a saint in that time, how much relief would you feel? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 describes the same thing. But Jesus is going to destroy his enemies in this moment, including the Antichrist, including the prophet of the Antichrist, including the followers of the Antichrist. And it's at that moment Satan will be bound for a thousand years during that millennial reign. Now, I know it's been a challenge for you to, to uh, process all this information and probably a greater challenge to stay awake during the delivery of this information. Uh, but I hope that you've hung with me for this because you're now going to, you're going to see, besides this final element, the fourth element, you're going to see a simple lesson of Jesus and then a challenge from Jesus, which I think will thrill your soul and motivate your daily Christian life. But first, the fourth element is the elect. Verse 27, as I've already described, the elect will be saved out of this thing by this return of Christ. The elect will feel great relief when they see, when they hear the trumpet, when they see the return of Christ coming to save his people and to set up his earthly kingdom. Now let's look at this simple lesson of Jesus in verses 28 through 31. What's the lesson? Well, it comes from the fig tree. You remember what was read to you just a few minutes ago by Rick Lyon? The fig tree here in these verses is something that Jesus used regularly to teach spiritual lessons, didn't he? Yeah, he did it in all four gospels. And here he does it again. He wants to comfort his readers. He wants to comfort his disciples with this lesson from the fig tree because he, know, he knew that 
this kind of language would really stir them up as it does us. So he used this familiar fig tree illustration to help them see the timing of the events. Jesus, just as you can tell that summer is near by the leafing of fig trees or the leafing of any tree, we have that privilege here in the Acoma Valley, you can also tell the soon return of Christ by things and watching for things that Jesus has identified, that he has mentioned. Let me ask you something. I don't know if, if you're into eschatology so much, but have you sensed, have you seen, have you smelt any of the things that Jesus is talking about in our society? It wouldn't be hard to agree with that. The evangelical generation before me, that means those that are older than me, and, and I say it that way because um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I'm one of the older people here now, and that is scary because I used to be one of the younger people here. And now we have uh, a room full of people younger than me, which is inevitable, but the generation before me was all wrapped up in eschatology. Some of your parents, for example, they talked about this a lot, didn't they? My dad was like the champion of eschatology. Uh, he would, at the drop of a hat, send me an article about the Euphrates River losing water um, or whatever would come up. He would make sure that I was reading it. And it seemed like every conversation ended with something to do with eschatology in Israel and Jerusalem and, and where the temple would be rebuilt and so forth and so on. And so, you know, it, it would be easy for me to say uh, to these things and easier for you who are younger to, than me to say, yeah, right. <laughs> the end is near. I, I, I've seen that guy walking around downtown with the, with the sandwich board. You know, the end is near. Um, but listen to this. And this, by the way, is the simple lesson of Jesus. From 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? You've been talking about this forever, Dad. I haven't seen it. They will say, where is the promise of his coming forever since the fathers fell asleep? That other generation before you all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We're tired of hearing about it. We're tired of hearing about the end times, about the return of Jesus, about the rapture of the church. I was in that gang, the scoffing group. Well, I want you to look at verse 29 with me. And here's the, the simple lesson from Jesus in a nutshell. So also, when you see these things taking place, what things? The things that he's been talking about, the things that I've been referring to, when you see these things. Now, <laughs> follow me here. Uh, he couldn't have been referring to the four disciples who had asked him the question about these things. Why? Because the events he was referring to were not going to happen during their lifetime. So when he was saying, when you see these things, who's the you? <laughs> and by the way, this type of language was common, prophetical discourse. Whenever the, the prophet would want someone who was going to be living during the time of his fulfillment, he would speak to them in that terminology, you. You who are going to experience it. The prophet would speak of you as to those who would read or experience the thing prophesied. And that is the case with verse 29. Who's the you? We are the you. We in this room are the you of verse 29. Jesus was addressing those who will experience the things that would begin to happen. The birth pangs, we can see it come in our direction. The things that he was describing, it says, that generation will not pass away. Is that us? Maybe. It might be. 
It might be that this, this group right here, maybe at least some of the younger ones, will not pass away before the return of Christ. We are the you. Now, I am not going to tell you to go get in your nightgowns and get on your rooftop and wait like Song Young Moon did back in the 80s. That's not going to happen because no one knows the day or the hour, but we can sniff it, can't we? If we can't see it, we can sniff it. Uh, like I told the first service, uh, my nose has been uh, highly sensitized to skunk smell because I've been blasted in the face three times. And that gives, gives you a little idea about my IQ, but it's happened three times to me. I can smell a skunk mile away. And that's what I'm talking about. Can we smell it? We can't see that skunk, but can we smell it? I think we're close. And I think that we ought to respond appropriately. Stay awake is what Jesus is saying. Don't fall asleep. Don't drift off. You can smell it, can't you? <laughs> yeah, I know you can. So that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about being in the you group and being able to sniff out this stuff. I want you to look at verse 31. It is a side light that, that I'm going to emphasize here, although it is not a side light to Jesus's discourse. He says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The things that I'm telling you will come to pass is what that means. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. I've just told you about that, Jesus said, but what I'm telling you is not going to pass away. I want you to think about something with me for a second. Who could say such things? <laughs> Who could actually honestly say something like that? I'll tell you who. This means that Jesus exists outside of time and greater than that, maybe not greater than that, but equal to that outside of matter. He's outside of time and matter. Heavens and earth, matter will pass away, time, but my word will never pass away. What I'm saying to you is that he is above and over all things that anything we can relate to. And this is Jesus' personal claim to be infinite. And the infinite one is making promises to us. So, we can take him at his word that doesn't pass away. We can trust that he is faithful to his eternal plan and promise of redemption and that he personally assures that each of us elect who have embraced him as Lord and Savior has our eternal well-being at his heart. It's a promise from the eternal one, the infinite one. Man, listen to how Isaiah, the prophet who lived long before Christ was born, speaks of this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Sounds a little bit like what Jesus said in verse 31, doesn't it? Yeah. And how about John in Revelation 21? Then I saw the new heaven and new earth. This sounds interesting. New heaven and new earth? For the first heaven the one that's going to pass away that Jesus talks about, and the first earth, the one that Jesus created and was, is going to pass away that he was talking about, that's passed away. And the sea was no more. So the old earth, the old heaven, gone. The new heaven, new earth, here, and there was no sea on that new earth. We're talking about a new experience, uh, a new dimension even, for those of us who know and love Jesus. And of course, keep in mind, that's Revelation 21, not 16. All right, this is after all these things, after the thousand-year reign, after all this has come to pass, then the old earth will pass away. Then the old heavens and the stars and moon will pass away for good. 
And those of us who are the faithful followers of Christ who have reigned with him faithfully throughout the, his thousand year millennial earthly kingdom will spend forever with him on this new earth and new heaven. Here's the important challenge of Jesus. Verses 32 through 37. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. So be on your guard, stay awake. Look at verse 37, and what I say to you all, stay awake. I'm saying this to you, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. I'm saying this to you, Sun Valley Church. The Holy Spirit is saying, stay awake. Get your priorities right, Christian. This life is not about your retirement, not about your vocation, not about your family, as important as that is. It is about the, the agenda of Jesus Christ for time and eternity. That's it. Don't miss this point, Christian friend. What an appropriate way to end our study of the Gospel of Mark. Stay awake. Don't drift off. Don't stop paying attention on the call of God on your life. Remember what it is to walk worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. Not one, not even the most well-educated Bible scholar can know when Jesus will return. We may be able to sniff it a bit, but Jesus even excluded his earthly self-emptied self in not knowing this divine knowledge. And I think this is God's intentional design to keep his people alert throughout their lives, focused on God's immediate plan for their daily lives. How are you going to live for Jesus from now till 5 p.m.? What are you going to do about your unsaved neighbors? You're going to keep just being nice neighbors like every other neighbor they have, almost every other neighbor they have? What are you going to do about your unsaved co-workers, your unsaved grandkids or unsaved siblings? It's just, what? No. It's clear what you're going to do, right, Christian friend, who's awaiting the return of Christ, who one day we will stand before. We're going to maintain the agenda of Christ Jesus from here till 5 p.m. See, You see, you need to understand here that Jesus has left his church here to continue what he began. He expects us to care for one another in the church, to love one another in the church, and by that love convince those who don't know Jesus that the gospel is true, to go into all the world for Jesus with his gospel, to baptize and teach them everything that he has taught us. Look at Luke 21 with me. But watch yourself, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Are you weighed down with the cares of this life? If so, pay attention. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you will have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and and to stand before the Son of Man. One day, Christian, you will be standing by yourself, not with your mom and dad, before Jesus Christ. And what are you going to tell him? I had a great vocation. I went to a good college. I had a nice house. My car was paid off. Really? No. No. You need to be able to say, I stayed awake. I took the opportunities that you placed in front of me. I was not only kind to my neighbors, but I loved my neighbors and told them the gospel. I want you to turn with me as we conclude our study of the gospel of Mark to the 16th chapter, the last chapter of Mark, and look, at, look with me at verse 8. And I want you to see how the women who found the empty tomb responded to that stunning truth that their Savior had risen from the dead. The thing that we hold central to our faith. And they went out and fled from the tomb 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Do you tremble at the greatness of your God? Are you a little bit nervous about all this eschatology weirdness? You ought to be. But are you astonished at the greatness of your Savior with his plans to love you through it all and bring you with him again for eternity to live in perfect bliss forever? That ought to astonish you. It ought to to make you tremble with excitement like it did these ladies. Think of all the opportunities that we have in this valley for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you making much of Jesus? Are you committed to a pursuit of personal holiness and spiritual growth? Are you prioritizing Christ, prioritizing his church, prioritizing his word? Or are you just think you got a ticket to heaven and you're going living your life like everybody else around you? Get it right, Christian. Get it right. Stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that a lot of times our eyes are not turned on Jesus, but they're turned on to this world. And we find ourselves consumed, distracted, um, misspent affections. Oh, Lord, we ask that not only in your patience would you renew our spirit, but that you would motivate us by your spirit to stay awake, to, to, to take your agenda as our own, to live every moment for the glory of our Savior in light of these great things that we've heard this morning from the lips of Jesus. Father, do your will in us. Please don't leave us behind. Help us to acknowledge our failures here and run straight towards Christ with a determination to make much of him. And I pray this in his name. Amen.